Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to ALR PRA Incorporated's Law Practice Management Radio. ALR PRA Incorporated is a national law practice management agency with offices in DuPage County, Illinois, and Orange County, California. We are a company run by lawyers for lawyers who want the tips, tools, and services to help them spend more time practicing law and less time worrying about the business. We specialize in providing in-house and subcontracted law practice management services through our two main divisions, Pleading Drafter for production and work, and a Law Publicist for promotional work. Our operations serve the greater suburban regions in and around Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. Our production division, again called Pleading Drafter, focuses on attorney staff placement, file management, audits, and our eBay store through which firms can sell gently used office equipment. Our promotional division, on the other hand, called Law Publicist, focuses on law firm marketing, branding, and image consulting, as well as traditional public relations functions. Our monthly communication services also include content copywriting for our law firm's clients, blogs, newsletters, and social media administration. Additionally, the Law Publicist on Point is the ALRPRA monthly publication featuring law practice management articles and resources. We are always looking for great content and advertisers for our Illinois and California editions of the On Point. Today is Thursday, February 25th, and I am your host, Nick Augustine. Today's guest is Attorney Donna Adler from the law offices of D. Tommaso Lubin, who is located in Chicago and Oak Brook Terrace, Illinois. Donna is here to talk today about case management issues that arise in the course of class action lawsuits. Before we begin today, we appreciate the opportunity to remind you that we broadcast every Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 o'clock Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific Time. We do have a great show for you this afternoon, and we'll open up for callers 30 minutes after we begin. Please be sure to email your questions as well to info at ALRPRA.com, which is I-N-F-O at A-L-R. PRA.com, or you can also call in by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Again, that telephone number is area code 917-889-9732, and please press 1 to be placed in the queue. By way of some uh, introduction on biographical background, uh, Attorney Donna Adler is counsel at D. Tommaso Lubin. She works on a daily full-time basis as a commercial and general civil litigator and has many years' experiences in those arenas. Her work includes class action work, and she is a graduate of the College of the University of Chicago and Northwestern Law School. She holds a Ph.D. from Notre Dame. She is a member of the Illinois Supreme Court Bar and the Bar of the Northern District of Illinois, the Seventh Circuit Bar, and the Illinois State Bar Association, as well as the Chicago Bar Association and DuPage County Bar, and also the DuPage Association of Women Lawyers. Donna, how are you doing today? I'm just fine, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Well, I, I think what we'll do is we'll, I'll ask you some basic questions and let you teach us a little bit about class action lawsuits and uh, with an idea that our listeners out there um, may have class action lawsuits that come across uh, their law firm or know a colleague who has a class action case and is looking for some information or a great resource on what to do if you do have uh, or believe you have a class action lawsuit. So, Donna, just uh, going ahead, um, if I can just ask a simple question, how or what are some reasons that a lawyer would want to do class action lawsuit work? Well, I can tell you some of the reasons that um, I find motivating. I think that lawyers can do a great deal of good going after people who end up cheating and cheating big by cheating in small ways. That applies to um, a number of consumer class action suits. Class action work is interesting and varied work. Lawyers are not restricted to a single area of the law, but can work on many different kinds of matters. They just have to be willing to learn the substantive law in an area. Then if counsel needs a cause to give him or her purpose, then he or she won't be at law to find one. So those are some of the reasons I find motivating. Okay. Can you give us some examples of people uh, 
cheating small and cheating big by by small actions and such? Well, there's a case I'm currently working on. It's an action um, against a seller of appliances, and this might be, um, say, a case that would would typically be good in the consumer arena. But in this um, action, the seller of appliances, uh, largely to property manors and apartment building owners, was charging these customers at a represented price and then affixed below the subtotal line for every order for appliances a fee of 2 to $3 that it was calling a government processing requirement. As it turned out, this so-called government processing requirement was not a fee that the local, state, or federal government mandated the seller to pay, as customers were led to believe. And the customer was just trying to recover part of its overhead costs with this fee without raising the price of its product. Indeed, the seller even charged sales tax on the fee, but customers were not alerted that they were actually paying a higher price on account of the fee. And that case involves, among other things, account for consumer fraud. So that's one case that um, would involve someone cheating big by cheating in small ways because the fee was charged not just to one customer but across customer accounts. And over a number of years, that can be cumulative. Now, there's another case that I'm involved in that might provide a good example as well. It involves a financer of used car sales that routinely cheated consumers of their one-time right of redemption under Illinois law. Um, consumers, their right of redemption to redeem their cars once their cars had been repossessed if they had paid 30% of the payment price of the car but fell behind in their payment. Now, Illinois law allows the consumer to redeem that car um, by paying the amount that he's in arrears and some other costs and fees. But this particular financer, when he sent out the notice of the right of redemption, was demanding full payment for the car in order for people to redeem their cars. Otherwise, uh, he was going to sell them. When you only uh, have to do 30%? No, when you have to just make up the amount you're in arrears, on the, on, you're behind in the, in the car payment. Okay. If you've paid 30% of the sales price of the car, you have this right of redemption, and you simply have to make up what's in arrears. What this financer was doing was requiring, he was accelerating the entire loan okay. for the car, and that was, um, that was not legitimate. So in, in that suit, there, there's a, an action for specific performance under the contract. There are, there are fraud counts, et cetera. And there are a number of, of people in the very same situation with respect to that financer. So that's a, another situation in which you have someone who is um, basically taking these payments for these cars, okay, and people aren't able to recoup that, and they're not allowing people to have their right of redemption, and folks are both without their money and without their cars, okay, so that's another case that involves someone cheating, and who ends up cheating big by, in that case, not cheating in such small ways, and, and right, cheating right. across the base of customers. So those are, those are two cases that I find interesting. Uh, another category of cases that I'm working on um, that is illustrative of this point involves violations of the Federal Labor Standards Act committed by companies who routinely misclassify employees as management employees mm. to avoid giving the employees overtime pay. Now, medical insurance overbilling is another um, good area that illustrates this um, concept of um, going after people who end up cheating big by cheating in, in, again, in this case, in not so small ways, depending on how much the overbilling is. Right. So with the Fair, Lab, the Fair Labor Standards Act and the, and the medical, um, both of those, can you get, give a little uh, further example on how, in, uh, so the, the, the employee, for example, man, you know, so the cheating, I guess, is what I'm trying to wrap my it's head around. It's a misclassification okay. and the cheating, um, being cheated out of overtime pay. Because if someone is classified as a management employee and he works, say, in excess of a certain number of hours, then... Um, the company doesn't have to pay him, okay, overtime pay, because he's a management employee. That overtime pay is something that um, non-management employees are, are entitled to. Okay, so I understand. If you misclassify employees as management employees, um, you get around that overtime pay. Okay, so, so there are employment issues, consumer protection areas. Any other good examples of uh, where, where this, uh, these types of cheats, cheats may uh, be occurring? Well, those are the best. Those are the best um, examples I have currently on my case um, caseload. But there are other examples um, that might prove the other point that that class action work is varied and interesting work that you're not okay. just confined to a certain arena. And again, I'll take some cases that attorneys in um, our office have handled before. But one of DiTomaso Lubin's cases involves a franchisor's wrongful termination of franchises 
and fraudulent inducement um, to purchase franchises over the entire New York City area. So um, franchisees were bringing this action against the franchisor. Now, why is that interesting and very important? Because if you're a business attorney, that might not be uh, an area of the, the law that you normally get into in your business practice. Right. So you have an opportunity to learn all the issues that there are to deal with in, in franchise law, and it, it provides a, a varied diet for your intellect, I think. Yeah, definitely. And the, the firm handled the securities fraud and RICO case, representing purchasers of oil and gas partnerships who had been defrauded into purchasing those partnerships. So again, you have an opportunity to um, sink yourself into substantive issues of securities law, and you get to handle the complex, the complex issues involved in a RICO case. And um, again, a varied diet. Okay, it's business law, but you have a varied diet within that arena. Firm represented middle-income homeowners against money center banks that conspired to sell at least half a billion dollars in second mortgages to them at inflated prices in a consumer fraud, RICO, and truth and lending action. Um, the firm was lead counsel in class action against a cable company for the return of millions of dollars in excessive late fees. So a number of different kinds of things you can do within the business arena in class actions. But class actions go beyond simply a business arena. Okay. Um, you, can, you can do class actions in environmental suits. Now, I haven't done one in, in, um, in that arena. There are also some interesting ones in, in um, the immigration area. I can give you a couple case sites to those. There's probably not time to, to talk about them at any great length. But... Um, 663 F sub 1164 is an example of an immigration class action. Um, a, a more recent one, 1996 um, Westlaw 285541 would be another one. There is an interesting class action, or was one, um, in the under the Voting Rights Act for um, for voting dilution. That was 696 F sub 1574. So. Class actions can occur in any number of realms of law, and lawyers who are interested in, in working in different areas can certainly use that procedural device um, in those settings. Okay, so that's that's good to know that the cheating, uh, you know, the cheating is going on in you know multiple different practice areas, and uh, it certainly does is a varied uh, area of law, and certainly seems uh, complex at the very least, um, and very interesting. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of the standards for a class when we when we see that we have people who are cheating um, and potentially cheating a large number of people? Um, that's, I believe, when most of us, we trigger our, our thought of maybe we have a class action in our lab. So um, what are some of the things to look at as far as standards for class action certification? How do we know um, whether we have a class and what do we start considering? Well, I think you're raising a good point that you might not know whether you have a class action suit right off the bat, and how do you tell? Well, I'm going to go back to the, the basic law school standards. You go right. back, you go to the statute. You figure out uh, what are the prerequisites for class action. Since I'm an Illinois attorney, I'm going to talk about the federal the federal standards in um, federal standards, but then also the standards in Illinois. Okay. And one important thing to remember here is that, especially for people who haven't done class actions before, the standards are different. They look the same, but they're not exactly identical. And what might be interesting for um, an attorney from from the strategic standpoint is to consider what are the actual differences between these statutes, and are any of those differences material procedurally for strategy purposes. You may find very well that they are. Um, but that goes a little bit down the line from this initial question of whether I have a class action in the first place. Right. Let's just go over the, the Illinois standards, for example, that are found at 735 ILCS 5-2-801. That's where the class action standards are in the Illinois statute. 2801 provides for the prerequisites for maintaining a class action. There are four standards. First, the class has to be so numerous that the joinder of all members is impracticable. We'll talk about what that means in a few minutes. Second, there have to be questions of factor law common to the class, and this is actually two in one. Not only do there have to be questions of factor law common to the class, but the common questions have to predominate over any questions affecting only individual members. And again, what does that even mean? Yeah, what do you English? mean by predominate yeah, right. in, in English? The third standard, um, the representative parties, in other words, the named plaintiffs, have to fairly and adequately be able to protect the interests of the class. And fourth, the class action has to be an appropriate method for the fair and efficient adjudication of the controversy. Well, the second prong that requires you to show that there are questions of factual law common to the class 
is, is the problem that's going to involve you most deeply in this, in this question, do I have a class action or not? Okay. Is the action that's come in the door something that really is even appropriate to consider as a class action? Um, and then the fourth one, is the class action an appropriate method for the fair and efficient adjudication of the controversy will also tie into discerning whether you actually have a suit that is um, capable of class treatment. But let's, let's talk about these different prongs in order. What does it mean that the class has to be so numerous that the joinder of all the members is impracticable? Is there a specific number that you've got to have? No, there's no magic number, but there are some parameters. Um, if a class is over, say, 100, you're in pretty safe territory. But there are issues when you begin to fall below that number. Um, there are cases that deal with what if you've only got a class of, of 20, or what if your class is between 20, between 20 and 40. Generally, if a, uh, if a class is under 20, you don't have a very good chance of having a class action, uh, a lawsuit certified as a class action. However, there was, um, there are some exceptions to that. There was is one Illinois case, um, and I'll give you the site to that. It's 121 Illap 3rd, 520, Coolins v. Malik. 459 any second 1038, in which a class of 19 was certified. Now, for those who are interested in, in fishing that case out, I advise you, or I would recommend that you do that to see why would anyone certify yeah. a class of 19, yeah. right? But under 20, generally, you're not going to get, you don't have a, a good chance of having class certified. Can I ask you, can I jump in with a little quick question? Um, this may be overstating the obvious, but what's our benefit of having the class act? Do we want, why would we want it to be a class, act, class action or not a class action? Well, if you've got, uh, for example, I'm going to take you back to the example that I gave you in the first place, uh, the fee case, when I was trying to explain to you that you have, um, or I was giving you illustrative examples of cases in which people um, cheat big by cheating in small ways. Right. One reason that might make a case suited to a class action, or what, what, what you're looking for when you're, you're um, trying to see whether you've got one, is, yeah. is there a simple issue here? Okay. In, in the case involving the government processing fee that I explained easy earlier. That's, that's easy. You have orders that go out to all the company's customers, and everybody has to pay that 2 to $3 fee that's called the government processing requirement. Mm -hmm. So all the customers of that company are required to pay that. There is a common issue of fact, and there will be common issues of law that all those customers will share. Yet the 2 to $3 an order that that fee, uh, that that fee constitutes it does not for any individual person who might have a complaint, uh, that's not sufficient to allow him to make it even economically feasible okay, for him right. so to he go ahead and prosecute right. the case. The attorney's fees would you know, be more than you know, potentially his recovery. Exactly. Right, yet, right, there's, right. yet there's a potential wrong here. Okay. And so by aggregating all those claims, um, a, a wrong can be righted. Can be so righted, okay. look for that kind of thing. And that goes to this, this second prong in the Illinois statute about whether there are common questions of law, in fact, that mm -hmm. predominate over um, individual questions. Thanks for answering that. That's helpful because of the tone, um, you know, that we should think about and what's going on. So I'm um, sorry not to distract you from... from well, that's we're. okay. We're not, <laughs> we're not on script here. Okay, so um, I talked a little bit about the number of class, right, class right. members. Okay, you generally want to have... Um, if you're over 100, that's, that's fine, but there are classes that have been certified with, with fewer than that. Okay. You get into trouble... Uh, between 20 and 40, the results in the case law are, are inconsistent about um, numerosity in those cases. We've talked a bit about and given some illustrations now of questions of factor law common to the class and a situation in which common questions should predominate over questions affecting only individual members. Now, the third prong is that representative parties have to be able to fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class. Well, what, is that, what does that even mean? What goes into making that determination? Well, you have to have a class plaintiff who's not just out for himself, for one thing. Mm -hmm. um, he can't be in collusion with the defendant. This can't be some kind of business deal he's got with the defendant to create some kind of a settlement fund so that he can benefit. There can't be any collusion between the plaintiff and defendant. The named plaintiff has got to have a valid claim himself. There can't be an adverse interest between the class representative and other members of the class. The interests have to be the same between the named plaintiff and the um, other members of the class, although not identical. And then the relief sought by the named plaintiff um, 
can't be potentially antagonistic to those of the unnamed members of the class. Adequate representation also requires that there be a qualified attorney prosecuting the class action. Now, I want to say one thing um, that may um, disabuse some people of illusions. When someone comes into your office with a claim that you think as an attorney might be suitable for class treatment, he's not coming with a whole class of people with him. It's not like the um, client's <laughs> coming with 30 people. He's they're coming, all outside he's in the parking lot. Himself. Okay, they're not even in the parking lot. Um, sometimes you don't even know. Um, you don't know the identities of these people in the beginning in some class actions. I mean, you have to have parameters that will allow you to identify the class members. The numerosity requirement can get a little bit difficult because you don't always know who's in the class. You have to be able to present some um, evidence to a court when you do a motion for class certification, which is what you have to do, okay. either, in, either in state or federal court to get a class certified. You have to have some idea of, of how these class members would be identifiable and be able to give the, the court some reasonable estimate, sure. estimate yeah, of the may, size of the class. Maybe like, for example, um, you're a, a consumer selling um, you know, a service and you have 300 clients you know, or 300 million clients, whatever it is, um, you know, and one thing has been happening to one, we can of presume that one thing has been happening to most or all. So this is kind of along that line. How, how, how far do you, how far in depth do you have to go? Well, that's going to be very case specific. Sure, okay. okay. What you have to do to determine who's in the class. Often what happens is that uh, you, depend, you depend on the defendant's records because the defendant is going to be in a, in a, um, position to identify the class members more easily than you are. Certainly. For example, in the suit that I, I have um, been describing to you, um, the plaintiff's not going to have the customer list, right? Who's going to have the customer list? Your defendant. Now, it's, it's, yeah. it's conceptually easy to identify the class in that case because um, it's going to depend on the customer list of the defendant. And mm -hmm. if you've taken the deposition of the defendant and you have already worked out that this fee is charged to everybody, et cetera, et cetera, then the problem of identifying who the class members are should not... Um, should not present insuperable difficulties. So you could see all the other issues that could potentially come up with, from spoliation to discovery blocks and all sorts. It's, it's got to, you, you definitely do have a variable and very interesting, uh, you know, practice area there with class action. So, um, well, there are some other considerations. Yeah, go okay, ahead. In, say, the Illinois statute, and then I'll switch a little bit to the federal one. But, okay. Um, you might wonder procedurally how things, how things work with a with class action. Once the, the class action is filed as a class action, that doesn't mean that you, you have a class that's been certified by the court. The court has to decide whether the action should proceed as a class action. When you file uh, a complaint with class action allegations, you are representing to the court that you think this, court, this case is suitable for that kind of treatment, and you're going to advocate for that position. The court will make a determination whether the, um, the action actually is suited to class action treatment. And a big part of that pre-certification stage is going to be devoted to defining the class. You're going to do this in your complaint, and you're going to devote a lot of time to um, crafting that class definition. Okay. Okay, why? Because if your class is either too broad and too amorphous, okay, you don't have something that the courts can identify as a group of plaintiffs with, with um, claims that make any sense. If it's too narrow and you leave people out that ought to be included, that can be a problem as well, and the, and the, and the court can um, fail to certify, certify the class. So you want to spend a lot of time on that class definition. And again, um, just a general rule of thumb, and if there's nothing else you take away from um, the program today, one thing you might want to remember is a simple rule, keep it simple stupid. <laughs> okay. You want a class action suit to be um, simple, both with respect to um, especially if you're just beginning this work, the identity the identity of claims or the uh, commonality of claims, I don't want to say identity because that's the wrong word, but the claims of the plaintiffs have got to be um, coming out of the same nexus of facts and law. That's the easiest way to, easiest way to approach it. So keep it, keep it simple. So your class definition can be simple. All kinds of issues can come up if it's, if it's not. Um, all kinds of issues can come up if there are, are many different individual um, in individual um, questions that pertain to a class. In Illinois, um, questions of damages, just the um, individual rights to recovery or the question of whether certain parts of the plaintiff class, class can recover damages would not be sufficient to defeat um, the commonality, commonality of issues in the class or particular defenses. But if you have too much of that going on, you might have a court question whether in fact the common questions of law, in fact, predominate over individual questions. So there can be a fine line, and you want to keep a, a case as simple as 
as possible. And part of the way you're going to do that is by crafting your class definition in a careful way. Simply. Simply. And in the uh, in the Illinois context, there's going to be um, there's a provision that you have to provide notice, okay, to the class members. One issue that a lot of people might not even think about: Okay, you file class action. Well, what happens to all these people in the plaintiff class? How do they even know that they're in the class? Why is it important that they know they're in the class? It's important that they know that they're in the class because any judgment um, rendered in the suit, if the class is certified, will be binding on them. There's a race judicata effect of, of a class action suit. Now, in Illinois, notice to the class is discretionary. The court, but that's not to mean that, um, that the, the court just has um, all kinds of latitude not to send out notice. There are due process considerations that, that, that enter in here. The way this breaks down, and we can do it sort of by comparison with the way it, it breaks down in, in the federal rules, although I'm talking about the state court law right now, mm-hmm. is that um, the court has more discretion in some cases than it has in others to decide what kind of notice is appropriate. Um, I think a general rule of thumb would be that where you have a class action that's based largely on money damages that's not predominantly, you're not seeking just injunctive or declaratory relief, and it's not a case in which um, um, only the necessary parties are, are, are in the class. If you've got a damages class action, then the safe side of, uh, the, safe side of the suit is to craft notice to go out to um, class members individually to the extent that you can identify them because that protects the due process right and the um, the Illinois courts would most likely honor that rule. That's parallel to okay, the federal court, uh, federal court requirement for class actions with, um, with money damages involved. Uh, so notes can get complicated, but it's important because judgments are binding on class members. What about publication is in part of the notice? Notice by publication is not always adequate. It depends upon, um, and, and probably wouldn't be in a class action that's um, primarily a class action for money damages. Okay. Okay, but in other kinds of class action suits, um, for example, a class action that's sought only injunctive relief or, or declaratory relief, uh, notice might, under some circumstances, notice by publication, might in some circumstances be adequate. The court's going to make uh, an individual case-by-case determination regarding okay. what kind of notice is, is necessary. It's important to spend a lot of time properly crafting a class notice because if you don't do that and if um, people who should be getting notice don't get notice, then the result in the end, say you recover a judgment, okay, you don't want to get reversed on appeal. No, no, I, <laughs> I can see the headaches and long nights you spend, just you coming. You spend a lot of your time, a lot of attorney hours. Many class actions are done on a, on a contingency basis so that attorneys don't get their attorney's fees unless there's a recovery, and they get their recovery out of the settlement fund after the claims of the plaintiffs are, are satisfied. So if you spend hours and hours and hours of your time and then you get reversed on appeal. Think what that means. <laughs> you have just lost hours and hours and hours. <laughs> you have wasted a lot of time. So good to do your homework ahead of time and know what you're getting involved yeah, with. Yeah, it's very good to be careful. Yeah. Okay, you might want to say in terms of these issues, what if you don't want to be in the class? Yeah. yeah suppose, that's you're a, another. suppose you're a person who's um, received notice that he's in a class, and he says, I don't want to be part of this class. Right. Well, under Illinois law, you have a, you have a right to opt out of the class. Okay. Now, why would they want to do that? Like, that's, so let's say they they want to pursue their own claim against the company, you know, on the side personally. Yeah. Maybe you know. maybe they've got maybe they've got um, additional claims against the company, or maybe they think that they'd like to pursue their claim on their own. Right. For whatever reason they've got, they have a right to opt out. Okay. And they have a right to opt out because um, that's related to this race judicata effect of a judgment. It's binding on them. They should be able to elect whether or not they want to be bound by the judgment. So in Illinois, you have that, um, you have that opt-out, you have that opt-out right. Mm-hmm. Um, in federal court, you have a more limited opt-out right. It's, um, it's available to you in class actions that are primarily for money damages. You have the right to opt-out. Not always in other contexts because the federal court might decide that it is more efficient judicially for um, certain kinds of claims to to be adjudicated and for people to be included in the class, so the opt-out right is less um, is less broad than it is under Illinois law. That's one important difference in um, in the two statutes. Okay, I think I've said about as much as I want to say under um, oh yeah dismissal and compromise of class suits. Either in state or federal court, you have to get the permission of the court before a class action can be settled or compromised. Why? Well. 
one of the reasons is that the, the court's got to protect absent class members. It is tied to this issue of whether there's fair or adequate, inadequate representation by the named plaintiff. You don't want there to be a settlement um, of a class action suit that's just going to benefit a limited, a limited part of the class, including the named plaintiff. Uh, the court has to make a very careful determination whether a settlement is going to benefit um, all people in the class. I mean, it's only going to benefit part of people in the class. Then mm -hmm. the court will craft procedures whereby the settlement will be binding only on, um, on certain categories of a class. So things can get complex, and notice has to be sent out of a settlement or compromise just as there has to be notice of, um, of a class in, in, the, in the initial parts of the suit. You know, after class certification, then a notice has to be sent so that people know they're in the class. If a class action is dismissed or, or settled and you're part of the class, then uh, there's got to be notice, um, a notice sent out to people so they have a chance to opt out of a settlement or um, have knowledge that they're part of a settlement. So they can really opt out. They can't really respond or, or object and say, no, I don't like the settlement. Oh, can there can they? be objections okay. to settlement. All right. Yes. And that's um, sort of at, the, at, at that phase of the procedure. So there are procedures. Courts have a lot of latitude to craft um, what the procedures will be for, for objecting. But sure, there's a, there's a right to Oh, okay. So, you can, so the, again, most of this is all on a case-by-case -case basis. It really does seem... Well, there are there are there are general features of class action procedure that are common to class actions, but within those right. general parameters, the court has a great deal of discretion to craft the tools that are necessary. Broad discretion. Uh, if broad you will, discretion yeah. to craft the tools that are appropriate to different kinds of cases. I mean, for example, you might have um, you might have have to have procedural tools, or you might have to have the court craft tools. The tools you might use in a consumer fraud case are are widely different from what you might find are necessary in the securities. Um, based class action litigation. Right, with so, what's appropriate with the subject matter. Exactly, yeah, so what's yeah. appropriate with the subject matter. By the way, callers out there, if you are interested in calling in, I'll remind you right now, if you have a question for Donna Adler on, um, on some general uh, topics that we're covering today, uh, area code 917-889-9732, again, 917-889-9732, or info, I-N-F-O, at A-L-R-P-R-A dot com. All right, continuing on, we talked about the state, um, the state procedural requirements here in Illinois for uh, class actions and certifying a class. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about the differences with the federal rules now? Yes, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, there are two parts initially of a federal rule of civil procedure 23 that will interest a person trying to figure out whether um, he meets class certification requirements in federal court. Um, 23A is roughly parallel to 2801 under state law, and there are some important differences. But it's not just 23A you have to be worried about in federal court. You also have to be worried about 23B. Mm, can we back for pause one second? Yes. Now, when we're talking about state or federal, are we, again, looking at things that are similar to uh, all litigation, um, you know, whether we want to be in federal court or state court, whether we have diversity, jurisdiction, or, you know, those types of issues when we're looking at state or federal, you know, is it a federal claim, federal question? And so is it, my question is, is, is it a similar analysis on state or fed, um, you know, put the class action stuff aside for a second, is it, a, you know, is it a similar analysis? Why, why are we looking at whether we're in state or fed court? Okay, well, you would you could be looking at that question for a number of reasons. For example, you might have a federal question, a question arising under federal law, mm. and that um, would be the easiest situation which you'd want to look at federal court, right? So if you've got a federal question, that's what you've that's what you've got. You want to be in federal court. You would make a, a choice to be there. But um, say you're in the realm of diversity, you have possible there's possible diversity jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. I said I wasn't going to go greatly into this because the uh, um, Class Action Fairness Act greatly liberalized the standards for diversity jurisdiction, which is why I said in the first place, right. let's assume that case that is uh, a potential diversity case in which you might have a genuine choice between whether you want to be in state and in federal court, right? Right. Okay, because if you've got diversity jurisdiction, then, um, then um, it's not necessary for you to have a federal question to get into federal court. Uh, prior to the Class Action Fairness Act, uh, removal of an action from state court to federal court on diversity grounds was permissible only if all class members had diverse state citizenship from all defendants and at least one class representative had $75,000 in controversy. Um, that's still the case if um, an action does not satisfy the Class Action Fairness Act substantive jurisdictional criteria. That's a special 
Um, that's a special topic all to itself, which is why I don't want to get into okay. that too much okay. today. Let me just suffice it just to say that the um, Class Action Fairness Act expands federal diversity to encompass most class actions in which any class member is a citizen of a different state from any defendant. So that if you had all class members in the same state as a defendant except for one, you could still get diversity jurisdiction as long as the matter in controversy exceeds um, $5 million exclusive of interest and costs. Now, when you think of the, the total amount that might be at issue, that could get you into, into federal court on diversity grounds, okay, not um, without too much of a stretch of imagination, right? Okay. Okay, but there are some exceptions to that, to that expanded jurisdiction, which is another factor that makes the Class Action Fairness Act a special topic all by itself. We could do a whole range yeah. of okay. so, on that. So if anyone has questions on, on point, please uh, reach out to, to Donna on, on, on your own time after, uh, the, after, radio after, after the radio show. But, okay, but um, very today. interesting. We were Okay, sorry to distract you, but it's always That's good to okay. think of a context of why are we even thinking about some of these all things. Right, so, so, suppose, okay. so, so suppose you're in that diversity context. We think we've got fed court. We're might, looking at and, fed and court. And you think you might have a genuine choice between a state forum and a federal forum. So you're not just looking at the um, class certification standards under um, Illinois law, or for the California listeners right. <laughs> under California law, you want to see whether maybe you um, meet the standards for certification under under federal court. And okay. how might these differ from state court requirements? Because I'm an Illinois lawyer, I'll make the comparison with Illinois law. Okay. Well, 23A, mm -hmm. which which um, set, is the first prong you have to be worried about in federal court, um, and I said 23B was the second right. um, part of the part of the rule that you had to be concerned with. Let's just look at 23A. That um, includes also a prescription, like the state court rule, that the class has to be so numerous that joinder of all members is impracticable. Now, again, um, that is the same as same as, as what you've got in the state court statute, so that one's the same. And I might add here that impracticable does not mean impossible, all right? It's just got to be very hard. Okay, now what's going to make joinder hard? If you have people distributed over a broad geographic area, okay, that's going to be difficult. Um, the other thing that's going to make um, joinder impracticable might be a motivation factor. In some of these cases that I've, I've given you examples um, where people end up cheating big by cheating in small ways, uh, the small ways in which they cheat may be too small to motivate anyone, um, any one person to just bring the claim himself. So the motivation factor might make joinder impracticable because um, there are people who would not otherwise be motivated to bring suits. So Very a number point. of things can can go into that determination. But in, at any rate, that is a um, prong that is shared with the state statute. Now, how about the second prong under the Federal Rule 23A? There have to be questions of law or fact common to the class. You say, well, I thought I heard that before. Isn't that part of the state court prong? Yes, that's, that was also part of the state requirement, but there was something added in the state requirement. Can I answer? Yes. Was it predominating? It was predominating, All right, yes. what do I win? <laughs> <laughs> that comes in later in the federal statute, okay, okay. but does not apply. Okay, okay so to, it's not on part two, law but, or fact, okay. But does, not, but does not apply, okay, to all federal class actions, only to one category of them. So in, in, but the state court requirement doesn't, um, doesn't differentiate with respect to different kinds of class actions in terms of that predominance requirement. Okay, so we have so one difference. you're alerted there already to one, one difference. Gee, I have to have questions of law or fact common to the class, but if you're looking at the Illinois statute, you're thinking maybe those questions don't always have to predominate. Right? So that's an issue that, that should be raised for you at that point. Then the third prong under the um, federal court um, rules is that third prong of 23A, the claims or defenses of the representative parties have to be typical of the claims or defenses of the class. That's different. Typical to parties, typical to class. Uh, no, the named plaintiff has to have a claim that is typical of the claims of the rest of the class. There is no typicality requirement under the Illinois statute. That's an important difference. And look at what it says have to be typical. Claims or defenses. Now, it doesn't say both and. It says either or. Of course, if you want to be on the safe side of Sunday, right, you're going to try to make it both and. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the federal statute. But claims or defenses of representative parties have to be typical of the claims or defenses of the, of the class. So that's different. And you have to say, gee, Illinois doesn't have a typicality requirement. It just requires that there be questions of law or fact that are common and that the representative party fairly and adequately protects. Well, 
The federal statute also has that fair and adequate protection prong. The, the, fourth, the fourth prong of 23A is that representative parties will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class. So there are two elements of 23A that are the same as under the state statute. That's the numerosity requirement and the fair and adequate protection. But there are two that are somewhat different. Questions of law or facts have to be common to the class under federal law, but under the state, state, state rule, regardless of what kind of class action you bring, those common questions of law and fact have to predominate over questions affecting only individual members. And then the second thing that's different in the federal rule is that the claims or defenses of representative parties have to be typical of the claims and defenses of the class. Now, the fourth prong, we didn't really get into this um, when I discussed uh, the state court rule, but the fourth prong in the state court was that the class action had to be an appropriate method for efficient adjudication of the controversy. Okay, and what would go into that determination under, under, under state court would be, um, and note how that's worded, it's got to be an appropriate method. It doesn't have to be the only method. It doesn't have to be a superior method. It just has to be an appropriate method for the efficient adjudication of the controversy. 23A doesn't say anything about that, but hmm. that's why we have 23B. Ah. <laughs> okay, so 23B is the other, uh, the, 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 the four elements under 23A are not all you have to worry about in federal court. Okay. So it's not going to be enough just that you have a class so numerous that joinder is impracticable. It's not going to be enough that you have questions of law or fact common to the class. It's not going to be enough that claims or defenses of representative parties are typical of the claims or defenses of the class, and it's not going to be enough that the representative parties will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class. Okay? You also have to, in addition to satisfying those prerequisites, you have to uh, be able to fit within one of the three prongs of 23B. Now, what are those prongs? I could bog you down into all kinds of details with this, but there's 23B1, mm-hmm. 23B2, and 23B3. Okay, the 23B3 action is probably the one that most people are most familiar with, but um, I'll get to that in turn. 23B1, um, I can simply um, quote to you if you want me to. Sure, go ahead. Okay, well, prosecuting separate actions by or against individual class members would create a risk of inconsistent or varying adjudications with respect to individual class members that would establish incompatible standards of conduct for the party opposing the class. So sort of a, thinking, so what does this mean? Like a policy right. base? Well, what would happen is that what, what, 21, what 23B1 is actually going to is, under other procedural rules, who would be necessary parties to join? Okay. Okay, so this is kind of the necessary parties. Kind oh, of all right, action. right, right, right. The second kind of class action, to put it simply and not to quote the rule for you, mm-hmm. is what if you just want to seek injunctive or declaratory relief? Sure. Okay? You want the court just to, to, just to declare that a certain kind of action is illegal or a breach of contract or, or whatever, and you want that declaration and you want an injunction. You want them to stop doing it. All right? That's a 23B2 kind of class action. And then there's a 23B3 kind of class action in which the court finds, now here's that language that will be familiar to you from the Illinois statutes, questions of law or fact common to class members predominate. This is the money damages kind of class Ah. action. The questions of law or fact common to class members have to predominate over any questions affecting only individual members. And a class and, and this is more stringent in federal court, and the class action is superior to other available methods for fairly and efficiently adjudicating the controversy. All right, so in the federal statute, it's only the 23B3 kind of action that has this predominance prong, and the class action has to be superior. It can't, as under the Illinois rules, just be an appropriate method for efficient adjudication of the controversy. It's got to be the superior way you adjudicate the controversy. Well, you might have a question here. Why would anyone ever go to federal court? Mm. Well, if you've got a federal question, you want to be in federal court, right? Right, right. And when you really think about the other two uh, prongs, B1 and B2, and you think you might be getting away with something because there's not this predominance requirement, think again what those kinds of class actions are. Um, first of all, the B1 class action is kind of the necessary parties kind of class action. Right. That's going to take care 
of predominance because what it means if you join necessary parties that you're necessarily going to have. Okay, yeah, by operation of the by definition. By operation of the yeah, definition, yeah. okay. And then, and then the sort of 23B2 kind of suit where you're seeking um, injunctive relief or declaratory relief, um, most of the time that is we all want X to stop doing right. Okay, right. this act, all right? So you're going to have, okay, a strong common interest there that's going to predominate. So even though predominance isn't written into B1 or B2, it's, it's almost part of it by, um, by the nature of the kind of, of class action you're bringing. So it's not necessary to say it there. You have to be careful, you know, what's going on with definitions here and what the nature of the beast is. Right, but um, why might you want to go into federal court? Say you had a genuine choice of going to federal or state court, and it were sort of a, a diversity, potentially diversity kind of case. Why, given sort of this, and you had a 23B3 kind of suit, what you wanted to do was a class action for money damages, to be right. more technical. Right. Um, why would you maybe want to be in federal court instead of state court when it appears that the 23B3 requirement is more stringent than the one under state law? It does seem more stringent. Okay. And what's more stringent? Well, under the Illinois rule, um, a class action just has to be an appropriate method for the efficient adjudication of the controversy. Um, and under the... Under the federal rule, it's got to be the superior method. What might motivate you to bring your action in federal court on diversity grounds instead? Mm -hmm. Well, all kinds of things, if you're a class action litigator, and I'll mm -hmm. just mention one of these. Um, but there seems to be a prejudice these days against nationwide classes in Illinois. <laughs> so if you've got, if you've got, there is, the, courts can be, um, the class action device is a controversial device for many different reasons. It has a lot of potential for good, as I've explained to you earlier, but people also tend to be suspicious of it. Courts can be suspicious of it. Um, there are prejudices out there against class action devices. Is this sort of a nuisance suit? Is this just a suit where attorneys are trying to get big money? Is this really a, a well-grounded suit? So there's a lot of controversy about, uh, about the class action as a procedural device. And there are two, uh, two um, cases in Illinois that seem to indicate that um, two 2005 cases that seem to indicate a mindset in Illinois against nationwide class actions. Now, this could change, okay, over, overnight or within the next year or two, but um, you might want to take a look at, listeners might want to take a look at, um, Illinois listeners might want to take a look at Avery versus State Farm Mutual Insurance, um, 216 Ill Second 100, and I won't go into the details of, of that case because there's not really time to do that in this forum. And um, Price and Fruit v. Phillips Morris, Inc., 219 L. 2nd, 182, 848 N. 2nd, 1. So those are two cases that might indicate to um, readers that um, there might be some kind of prejudice in, um, in Illinois against a nationwide class action. Huh. So prudential considerations of that type might spur you to think about why might I want to bring my, my case in federal court um, even if, I have to prove that the class action device is a superior method rather than just an adequate method for um, adjudicating a controversy. Right, and it, and it would seem that you would probably want to file your case in Fed court to begin with instead of removing from state. It just seems that that would just seem to be. Uh, it just seems anytime someone files a, a case in state court and then wants to remove to federal court, it just seems like a lot of uh, a lot of work when you could have been, you know, in federal, in federal court, court to begin place. with. Well, yeah. Against strategic considerations, yeah, right, right, right. I play into that kind of decision. There's so much. There's there's so much to know. Um, but you've really done a very nice job, and I thank you for uh, boiling it down to some of the basics that things you know things that people should look at. Um, I think that it seems to me, uh, after hearing you discuss some of these issues, that. Class action lawsuits really don't have to scare people away, and they don't have to be intimidating. No, um, it's you just know it just it's very statutory and operating within the statute, um, and uh, of course uh, consulting um, with someone who knows the practice area very well um, when necessary. Um, is that something that happens often that you get calls, uh, you know, at DiTomaso Lubin from other attorneys around the state? Oh, sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. All, we're often co-counsel on cases with, with other folks who um, don't have much experience with class actions, and, um, you know, we welcome those kinds of connections. So, um, If you'd like, how would someone get a hold of you? Uh, do you want to give them your, your information right now? Yeah, sure, we can do that. Um, the firm is reachable. At, our number is 630 Three 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 zero 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 zero. So it's fairly easy. Oh, that's easy. easy All threes and zeros. <laughs> <laughs> threes and zeros. Triple three. If you dial all zeros and all threes, you're not going to try no, don't again. Do it. Don't do it in the wrong order. <laughs> three 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 and then all zeros. Okay. How else can they get a hold of you? You have a website. 
we do have a website, but I Okay, D Tomaso. I suppose if we Google D Tomaso Lubin, we'll we find the where where are your office is located. We're at Old Brook Terrace. It's um seventeen West two two zero twenty second street in Old Brook Terrace. And the zip is six zero one eight one. All right, we found them. We have the website is dtomasolaw dot com. That's right. Which is D I T O M M A S O L A W dot com. Um, so any other uh, parting words of wisdom you would like to get to the uh, practitioner out there who, whose phone is going to ring now with class action lawsuits now that we know how to issue spot them, right, everybody? What well, would you leave them with? What, what would I leave you with? Um, well, I haven't um, been able completely, of course, in the limited time we have. Um, we'll have you back on some of the other of, later. So. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, we'll talk we'll more about that. what has been act again, the other one? The um, Class Action Fairness The Class Action Fairness Act is yeah, a whole course. Yeah, it's all by itself. All right, well, we'll, 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 we will bring You know what? I am offering right now, if you so accept, to come back and talk more about that at a later date. Does that sound good? Oh, of course I do. All right, okay. well, so get ready, listeners. We're going to delve further into it. So you were saying uh, any further party parting? Well, these do have to be parting words of wisdom, so I'm going to stop where I stopped um, with a, a caveat to my um, listeners that I haven't been able to cover all aspects of Federal Rule of 23 that are relevant to class actions. There are notice provisions under that, um, notice provisions in, in um, the Federal Rule, Federal Rule 23 that um, are different somewhat than the state provisions. Um, if there, are, there are several things that you remember today. The um, two most important things to remember, and this is going to sound simplistic, but I find that often if people can just take nuggets away, that they those nuggets come back more than the substantive stuff. The um, the two things to take away: keep it simple for class actions. Keep it simple, okay? Consult someone who's done it. That's something that I would good, say too. Good thing. And remember that there can be significant differences between the state state standards for class certification and um, Federal Rule 23 that can play heavily into class action strategy. So you don't want to make that decision lightly if it's a genuine choice for you. All right. Thank you, Donna Adler from DiTomaso Lubin, for talking about class actions. I uh, remembered several things from law school that were buried, you know, deep there in the brain. So um, good, good information. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you also to our listeners who are faithful and either are tuning in live or are clicking to listen to our broadcasts on an archive basis after the fact, um, we work really hard to try to bring you some good relevant topics and uh, some great experts here to talk about different things. Um, and now throw this out there that, again, you know, our attorneys cannot claim to be experts, <laughs> ethical, uh, you know. That's correct. Yeah, so we, while we do have law practice management ex uh, uh, experts, we also have practitioners who practice in, uh, very solely in certain areas. So um, as we're talking about ethics, I as well toss that out there. Um, again, I'd like so again, thank you, listeners. Uh, ALRPRA Incorporated's mission is to provide solution, solutions allowing you to spend more time practicing law, less time managing the business of law. Our mission's underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management agency available nationwide when quality matters to your production and promotion. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.